0: Every solution starts with an idea. Think about this. Consumers needed more home security. So the founders of Ring came up with the smart doorbell. Homeowners had trouble finding time to complete recurring tasks such as vacuuming. So Roomba automated the vacuum. But despite those great ideas, every founder needs some help along the way. Or more specifically, they often need financial backing to scale a business. And more importantly... They need someone to believe in them when others don't.
1: We often joke that our best investments are the ones that nobody else likes. We're investors in Dollar Shave Club. I was told that was stupid. It got acquired for a billion dollars. We're investors in Ring and people laughed at me. They're like, you invested in a doorbell business? A lot of times, the ones that aren't necessarily obvious are really the best opportunities. And so it's kind of digging in and understanding if this does work, is it going to be really valuable?
0: Kevin Dunlap is the co-founder and managing partner of Calibrate Ventures, a VC firm focused on funding early stage AI and automation companies. Every year, Kevin and his partners sift through hundreds of companies looking to take the next step in their entrepreneurial journey. But what separates the companies that receive funding from the ones that never make it past the pitch stage? And what trends is he seeing within the automation and AI space? On this episode of IT Visionaries, Kevin explains Calibrate's process for picking companies to partner with and what questions startups should be answering before they ever step up to pitch to VCs. Enjoy this episode.
1: IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform.
2: Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, special guests and a different type of guest. We have co-founder and managing partner at Calibrate Ventures, Kevin Dunlap. Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, appreciate it.
2: Nah, we're stoked to have you on. And it is not often that IT Visionaries has someone from the venture capital side, but we're excited to ha- have you here. We want to hear your vision and what you guys are you know, investing in in the future. But before we get too deep into that, start us off by talking a little bit about Calibrate Ventures. What are you guys focused on? What's your principal interest? What are some of the things that you guys are looking for when you make investments?
1: Yeah. So my partner, Jason and I started Calibrate Ventures in 2017 after investing together for uh, almost a decade, over a decade actually, we started investing together in 2004. And we really realized that there was an opportunity around digitalization and automation, all the companies that we'd invested in the past could benefit from it. And so as we started seeing the advancements around artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, robotics, we really set up and formed Calibrate to take advantage of those opportunities. We also realized that that same core technology could be applied in lots of different verticals. And so when you see our thesis of actually investing in companies, it's got a core thesis around machine learning, computer vision, or AI, and it's taking that and applying it to different verticals that haven't had that benefit of digitalization in the past. So it's not the traditional SaaS model, or it's just software that's sitting on a machine, but it's actually a lot of times it's taking software and taking it into the physical world and manipulating things that could be done by a human or something else.
2: I'm excited to hear about this because if I have to hear a, another company tell me that they have an AI that'll help Figure out what kind of shirt Kevin likes. i be like, that's, <laughs> that's, I don't know. That's helping society. Is that helping society? I don't understand. You know, so I saw some of the portfolio investments, some pretty cool stuff. You know, I'd love for you to give some examples of what you mean by how AI is actually helping the physical world, because I think most of us have heard like, oh, it can better predict what you're saying, like software basis. I'm like, yeah, that's a better user experience. I don't, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but like, Based on your portfolio companies, it feels like you guys are pulling for some bigger moonshots, like transforming the way we live. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'd love to hear exactly what you guys mean by bringing AI to the physical world.
1: Yeah. I think if you look at, and a lot of times AI is a pretty vague term, right? Yeah. People can apply it to lots of different things and it could be the AI for X, Y, Z. But a lot of times AI for us means the implementation of computer vision and actually making predictions about how to behave in a physical world. So one of the more recent investments we've made, is actually in a company called Parallel Domain. And what they do is they create synthetic data to better train autonomous systems. And so right now what happens is automakers and drone delivery companies actually have to go out and collect data and tag it. Mm. It's costly, it's time consuming. The engineers always want more data. And what we actually do is we synthetically generate that data and then our customers merge that data with the real world data To predict better outcomes, as well as allow for um, more cost-effective development, and so it actually speeds their development by having more data. And so there's some customers like Toyota Research Institute that have actually published that synthetic data improves their time development and improves their actual algorithms. Mm. And so when you think about things actually driving or flying around in the sky, having an actual better algorithm is really important, right? And so those are one. That's just one example of how software is being taken in the physical world and thinking about how we implement that with day-to-day interactions between humans.
2: I'm on their website right now and I'm trip and it's like it's pretty wild. It's got a video demonstration of all the objects I guess it can recognize instantly in real time. I mean, and that's what it's insinuating. Like it's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean so you think about it you could have a downtown urban area that has that has rain. It's got you know it's towards the evening, it's got glare coming off objects in different pedestrians or poles and different things along those lines. And we can actually create those scenarios so that the algorithms can understand those. It could even be emergency vehicles. Those are hard to actually capture in the real world. You'd have to have someone at that spot collecting that emergency vehicle going through with the lights on and everything else. And we can generate those and implement them into the scenarios. And so when people actually see it, they actually get it, right? It's one thing to talk about the the concept of it. But I love that you're on the site because you can see how realistic those scenarios are.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you were, as soon as you said, I was like, I kind of understand, but then I don't really understand. So then I clicked on, I was like, oh, I understand now very quickly. There was another investment I saw on your, it's on the front page, farm wise, pretty interesting. I clicked that and it makes total sense. Um, You know, I'll give a quick intro, but I'd love for you to dive into it. They're talking about using some level of artificial intelligence and sensors to help actually make farming basically more yield per acre, I think is the best way to say it. And one of the things they started with is to actually identify weeds. It looks like they're like weeding technologies, the ability to extract weeds without having, I guess, the old way of doing it is actually having farmers and workers walk up and down the rows of crops and look for weeds. I mean, that's just probably one use case. They probably have others. I'm just reading off their website.
1: Sure. There's a lot. And I think if you look at it, if you look at the investments we made, especially in the robotics and the physical world, what you're seeing is there's an increase in labor wages. Yep. There's a lack of labor, especially for these dirty, dull, dangerous jobs. So they're ripe for disruption. Yep. And so what farmwise really does is farmwise first goes after that mechanical weeding aspect. So there's a lot you'd have to have crews come through. There's a lack of labor. Farmers are facing shortages available workforce. And so what we do is we have an autonomous vehicle that comes through, mechanically weeds the field. But the crux and the most important part of it is that we're using computer vision to identify what's a crop and what's a weed. Yeah. So we're also collecting massive amounts of data on that farmer's field. So then we can also take that data and understand how to predict yield for that crop, as well as understand if there's other areas within those fields that need to be sprayed or maintained in a different way than they are to actually optimize the value of that acreage for the farmer.
2: Yeah, pretty insane stuff. Now, one of the things that you that is clearly present with all of these investments and like the the kind of the vision or the mission of Calibrate Ventures, you know, in order to bring utility to the physical world, typically software needs some type of sensor, some type of hardware component. And I know when it comes to early, let's call it early stage investing or VC investing, like that's a like bigger ask than just someone who can program software, right? It's like not only are you programming software, but then you have to build or use leverage hardware. You have to license hardware maybe if you Create an object that, like a new sensor or something, you'd have to possibly patent it, get it manufactured. Like, there's a lot of other steps. Talk about how you guys view, how you guys evaluate that, because the from my experience, getting dog toys made, getting something made for you is not that easy. Uh, it, it's a lot different than just shipping code.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the joke is hardware is hard, right? Um, it's just, it's difficult. We're, we're, it's not all we do, but it's definitely a component of what we do within Calibrate, and we don't shy away from hardware. Right. I was listening to a couple of the other podcasts, and and you guys had Josh from Ring on recently. Yeah, I think that's a great example, right? As we think about the components that are required to optimize software in the physical world, a lot of them have gotten to a point where the cost is lower, the computing power is greater, and you're able to do things that you weren't able to do five or 10 years ago. I mean, frankly, Ring probably wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, right? right? The, the level of in-home connectivity wasn't available. The cost of cameras was too expensive. And so as we start thinking about the sensors and what's required to operate in the physical world, a lot of those components are gotten to a price point where these solutions now make sense. And I think that's also why we're starting to see not just the home consumer in Ring's case, but we're also seeing enterprise customers start to look and understand what the real ROI is to them Mm -hmm. and start to actually start investing heavily into the operations. And you also see some opportunities. FarmWise operates as a RAS service, robots as a service. Mm. And so when... We've kind of offered up these different types of solutions for customers. It doesn't require that full CapEx that was once required. And so they're able to implement point solutions as opposed to going and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on automating a factory. So the, the integration around the software is really important. And that's what the crux of all our companies come down to. But a lot of times the actual mechanical components have gotten to a point where they're not necessarily commoditized, but they're, they're much more cost effective than they were before.
2: No, that makes total sense. Every day when another product or innovation comes along and typically pushes down the price of all things associated that came before it, and that helps us get more accessibility to compute, resource, whatever that case, whatever you need, it makes total sense. I'm curious when, you, when a founder sits down in front of Calibrate for the first time and you know you're listening to what they're talking about, I know it's difficult to pinpoint what it is you're listening for, because everyone always says, "Well, I invest in people." I understand that, but on the technology side, what are some of the things that you, you know, it's obviously not a formula, but it's like some of the things you, you and your partners and your team leans in on where you're saying, "Okay, this is something that's going to be cutting edge," and we think it's cutting edge because it's this. What are some of the things you're listening for or hoping to to uncover?
1: You know, I think when we we start with people, right? A lot of people start with people. Yep. we look at the market we look at the unit economics and then we really look to understand what the ROI is, the customer. But when we dig into the core tech of the business, what we really do is we, we have a venture partner who's very technical. We also lean on our founders and former founders to help us diligence on the technical side. Although it used to be, an aerospace engineer you actually don't want me touching any of your product anymore it's been too long but you know i think when we start digging down we start asking questions around behavior of, of the software if it can actually understand and has light visibility you know what happens in low light environments are you able to operate what happens in high light environments when everything looks the same especially on a computer vision investment mm-hmm. you know when you start getting answers that oh yeah we figured it out it's probably not totally true and that's that frankly that's fine right like if we we've got technology a little bit of technology advancement that we need we're okay with that i mean we've got a base product that's working and we're able to sell to a customer and they're happy with it and we're delivering the roi that's fine we're willing to take some of that risk and there's always technology advancement that needs to occur within a company but pushing on some of those finer points around the tech and the answers that we we get back you know usually if everything's solved it's it's a little bit of a red flag but if if the founder is completely honest and says listen i need to you know build out my computer vision team. I need to build out my machine learning team. And there's areas that I want to focus on. I think those are much more honest conversations. And typically, those are the founders that we want to work with, because we can have a conversation about product roadmap and, and other things along that line, as opposed to just, no, everything's good, invest, we'll be fine. Right? I think those are one of the major red flags.
2: <laughs> I would definitely tend to agree, right? Anyone who says they have the answers, or if they say like there is no competition... <laughs> it's always, a, always a red flag. Typically, you know, when you think about you were talking about earlier, you're like, you know, there's two things that are happening right now, and then you hit on one of them, which is like the the there's there's labor shortages in a lot of these dangerous areas, but there's also from what I've read, lots of labor shortages in high skilled areas. There's basically labor shortages everywhere, right? There's not enough ultra skilled workers, and there's all not enough people willing to do heavy manual labor work. What factor is that going to play? in regards to like the growth of innovation and technology? Cause there's definitely going to be more founders trying to start things. I don't think that's ever going to stop, but doesn't that become soon a problem because it's like the skill level, we haven't like upskilled enough people yet to chase some of these things. that like maybe you guys are chasing.
1: I think there's, there's multiple uh, responses to that. I think yeah, one of the biggest things is we've got to start and press STEM and STEAM earlier in students and let more students and more geographies really get exposure to that. Mm-hmm. It starts early, right? As we talk about diversification and inclusion and diversity, you know, we have to start opening up those opportunities to people earlier on so they can see those and realize that those are opportunities for them in the future. I think that's the first step. I think the second step is we have to think about how we retrain or uptrain train people. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to have a computer, a computer vision or computer engineering degree to work on in robotics. These robots still need to get fixed on machine floors and understanding the basics of how to work with them is a great job for a lot of people. Yeah, So I think there's opportunities as we move into different verticals and expand the automation. There's lots of different opportunities for people to work within these fields and they don't have to have that PhD in computer vision necessarily either.
2: Yeah, and we you know, I've read this has been stated. I think by many of, whether it's a VC or you know business leader, they always talk about how eventually, as a CEO, your your role becomes a you're like a recruiter. You're basically you become you become it gets to a point in a scaling operation where you become a recruiter. Is that something you look for and prioritize? Because it seems more important than ever on the technical side. Like your ability to recruit is going to be. Very much so instrumental in your ability. To, and I think it's always been there, but like now, with so much competition, so many let's say higher wages that are going around for the compute skills, I mean you're gonna have to probably do a little convincing to get someone to work for you.
1: that's probably true. I think there's a different there's a different mindset of the person that wants to go to Google or wants to go to Facebook versus wants to come to a startup, yeah, right so there's always those people that want to be in early, they want to be on groundbreaking tech and they want to focus on on changing something and so it's a different pool, but I think one of the things we always look at in a founder is do I want to work with them personally? Would I want to go and work for them? And if that question's true, then they're probably going to be better at recruiting as well. Right. Yeah. And so understanding kind of where the value proposition of where that business is and is this person that is a true leader and can rally people around their vision to get them excited is something where you might be able to win that key hire. Where uh, another business might not be able to.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense. And then for yourselves, like, how I guess do you look at sectors and segments, or do you guys have like where you're actually looking for businesses that can fill segments where you say like this is going to be a big market opportunity, or is it more along the lines of you guys meet and want to sit down with founders who are leveraging automation and AI into the physical world and wherever their sector is, their sector is where you're not looking to fill. Like you're not looking to a specific sector, you're more looking for the people or are you actually specifically like, Hey, I want to know who is working on this sector.
1: We really start with the focus around the sector and where we want to go. There are times where we meet a founder who's exceptional and it opens up our, our eyes to a, to a field that we necessarily haven't been focused on. Mm-hmm. But because we've been doing this for 17 years, we've had a lot of corporates that invested in, alongside us. or become customers of our companies that we've gotten to know. So we also spend a lot of time talking to them and understanding what their pain points are. Yeah. I think it's great when you meet a very visionary founder, but if we don't believe the market is, you know, it's 10 plus years out, that's hard to invest in right now because you need to bring in revenue. You've got to bring in gross margins so you can support the business. Sure. So there's always that balance of, is this a core technology that's solving a problem? And what is the adoption cycle going to be in the market? And so that's when we sit down and actually think about those things, it's, is it solving the problem and how quickly is someone actually going to want to, to implement this into their business? And what you see with automation is that it's longer sales cycles. You're not selling a $15,000 SaaS package. You're selling you know, what sometimes can be hundreds of thousands of dollars of automation equipment into a factory. And those are really core mission critical things to businesses. So they can't have downtime, yeah. whereas a piece of software or CRM doesn't work for a day you know, your, your business hasn't stopped you're frustrated, but it hasn't stopped production.
2: Yeah. So talk a little bit, and I'd love to hear some of the sectors where you're looking to, are you looking specifically more in, uh, more than others when it comes to AI and automation?
1: I think the, the sectors that are interesting to us are, you know, we, we talked a little bit and you sent some questions over warehouse automation. Yeah. The automation around food and bev manufacturing is important one. We've got investments in agriculture, like we mentioned, farm-wise, we have an investment in a company called Built Robotics, which is in um, a construction space. And so it's really where we can open up fields that haven't had digitalization automation in the past. So it's not necessarily going to be that enterprise software sale, we're going to go sell 10,000 seats. It's something that we can come in and, and take digitalization to in a new environment. And so those, the ones I mentioned earlier are some of the ones that we have invested in. Mm -hmm. And I still think there's a lot of opportunities in those verticals as well.
2: Yeah. Talk about some of the problems, you know, pick any vertical that you'd like to discuss, but I'd love for, because I think that's one of the things that I always like about this show is when you hear founders and then I always, sometimes I hear, I think to myself, well, how did you know the problem existed? You know what I mean? (laughs) Because... Obviously, the young, the young or uh, aspiring entrepreneur, they don't have to be young, but the aspiring entrepreneur typically has to first recognize that there's a problem to be fixed, right? Uh, we just had someone do this like personal identification thing where they were just on from Persona. It was all software driven, but they said like they discovered it in the world of while working at Square. They noticed that it was very difficult for business owners to apply for a business loan because. That's what Square was issuing at the time, but you had to submit your like W-2, you had to submit your 1040, you had to submit 1099s, you had to submit all kinds of stuff just to get a business loan. And they said they didn't have an automated way of reviewing it. Literally a guy like Kevin, just, Hey, Kevin, take a look at these papers, review this and figure this out. And then they're like, this is a problem. We could probably automate that. What are some of the problems you're seeing where you're like, man, if we could get solutions in here, like, I'd love for you to explain some of the problems that are facing these industries, because we've had some guests on like, to like explain for example like the trucking logistics problems and they're like you know companies like convoy are coming in to solve it's pretty impressive but like uh you know i'd love to hear from your perspective like hey dang this is a big opportunity if, if there's a company that can fill it this is this is a huge one
1: yeah i think there's some really interesting opportunities around manipulation within robotics mm. so specifically around food and bev and warehouse logistics the traditional mechanical grippers that have a rigid grasp or a suction typically don't work with a lot of products. So we do have one company, Soft Robotics, that has materials that came out of Harvard's research lab, George Whitesides, that's working on this. But there's still certain things that we can't grasp either, right? So I think there's a real opportunity around thinking about malleable or odd-shaped, multi-skew products and thinking about how to grasp them in an efficient way without damaging them. And I'm not sure it's a pure AI, Solution where you try and classify what every apple shape is in the world, and and then identify that way. There's probably some some applications around unique hardware that can grasp them and manipulate objects in a a different way. I think that's that's one that's been really interesting to us. Um, We've looked at a number of companies.
2: Yeah, real quick, like give an example. Like I'm trying to think an odd shaped malleable object.
1: So think of pizza dough, right?
2: But isn't it boxed? It's not boxed.
1: Well, there's factories that make the dough and then have to move the dough around the facility, depending on how it's made and stored. Okay. And so it's not getting shipped right away, right? It's got to move through the different processes, but a a mechanical gripper would just squish it and a suction gripper would actually get clogged up from the mechanism (laughs) that it uses to grip it. And so there's other ways to do that. Another one is as silly as it sounds, uh, peeps, right? They're they're soft marshmallows that are in sugar, right? Yeah. That was something that they been, they'd been trying to automate for decades and couldn't find anything that wouldn't get stuck to the peeps or wouldn't damage the peeps. And so there's lots of things that you might not necessarily think about as difficult to grasp that in reality really are.
2: So does, does that mean peeps are packed by hand?
1: They were, but now they have actually been automated.
2: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get you. Yeah. So that, all right. That's a good example. Well, this is fascinating. What are the things that are you, are you like looking for?
1: I mean, I think the things that we really look for are things that are manually intensive that could be solved with computer vision. Mm -hmm. At least some of the more interesting, just kind of conceptually, intellectually curious concepts that we look for. And so it could be anything from material removal how are you able to actually? Take material off of composites. That's all done manually right now. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the country are doing that job,
2: like scraping, just literally scraping things up,
1: scraping, sanding, all types of different things. It's you know, it's got high turnover. People don't like it. It's dusty. It's dangerous. Those are other another opportunity where we could find additional avenues for people to add higher value than doing that on a consistent daily basis. We've looked a lot in the industrial automation space, not necessarily the robotics around it, but also thinking about how do we take machine data and PLC data out of these machines to improve the efficiency of manufacturing. Hmm. I think there's, you know, the big companies like GE, which you, you had GE Digital on a while ago. Yeah. I think they do a really good job at the large scale, you know, airplane engine and thinking about that. But there's a lot of machines that are collecting data in smaller manufacturing units in different areas that aren't able to optimize the same way that a GE is. And so if they're able to actually collect that data and think about how to use it in the right way, there's opportunities to uh, increase their yield and output as well. So that's one of the areas we've been looking at pretty heavily.
2: So we've always, humans have always predicted an automated future, right? Like ever since the Jetsons, we've been talking about like this, like futuristic robots are helping us out. Uh, you know, of course, Marvel with the, you know, Jarvis helps Iron Man do just about everything. When you think of all these robotic technologies, they take a while to come to market, no question, but they are coming to market quite quickly. Um, we've seen more, you know, more options, I guess, all the time of like automations. Uh, I remember when the Ruma first came out, I was like, this is, this is mind blowing, right? Okay. <laughs> I got one. Little did I know I found out that the, the tank was too, very small, <laughs> but they've gotten better, of course, over time. When you think about it, do you see an automated future in the future where where basically most services or repetitive services are done by robots? Is that in our ten year horizon, twenty year horizon? I'm curious what your personal belief is. I feel like it's still pretty far away because you know like when I think back to that Roomba, like it wasn't that good, and I know the the new ones are better. I think some of the industrial robots are probably very, very good at their use cases, but when you think of like a consumer, like an everyday person. We don't really do anything enough, you know what I mean, where we need a robot to do it for us.
1: Yeah, I I read a lot of sci-fi, and I think <laughs> that you know if you look at sci-fi over the years, we've actually developed the things that have been predicted by sci-fi authors. Yeah, it's questionable who who actually came up with it first, right? The the entrepreneur who built it or the author who thought of it. Yeah, but those things have been pretty far off, right? I mean, think about the Apple Watch, right? Like being able to talk into it—that was basically Dick Tracy. Yeah, 30, 40, i forty—I don't even know how many years ago. So I think we're pretty far off from having a fully automated consumer life. yeah. I think the other thing you got to consider and take into account is that, you know, robots can be dangerous, right? And so even when you think about industrial robots, a lot of the higher speed industrial robots have cages around them. So humans can't fully interact with them. Yeah. And so we've got to take into account that, right? I mean, people talk about level five driving. We're not going to see that in four or five years. We're still far away from that. We're going to see more advanced, edas and things that help with lane holding and distance in front of you and so it can alleviate a lot of the errors that happen for a driver but i think we're still a ways from being able to jump into a vehicle and, and go down any street we want that hasn't been fully mapped and has hundreds of thousands of dollars of sensors and lidar <laughs> and everything else on it. now some people that might upset some people who think we're closer to it than than i personally do but yeah i, I think we're We're a ways away from the fully autonomous life, which might be okay too, right?
2: Yeah. So interestingly, when we talk to people outside of this industry, I would say it's like 50-50 split on what they think the future is of autonomous driving. But we also have a show called The Fleet, where we interview all these fleet managers, driving companies, AI, like people that are chasing it. And they all seem to kind of agree that it's pretty far away. Autonomous driving is just so hard to it's just very hard. It's a very difficult app. The human mind is still quite impressive in its ability to process information very quickly.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, just think about if you go to grab something on your desk, you've got so many d- degrees of freedom in your arm and your body and your torso. Like that the mechanical properties alone are advanced, let alone the the cognitive abilities of your brain to understand the pressure that's needed to pick something up and do everything else associated with it. So, we've definitely got a lot of opportunity ahead of us.
2: Yeah, but when you, back to your when I do hear these use case applications for IoT devices as well as robotics inside of manufacturing or production, what if you want to call it production, like uh, farming to me is just production, that makes total sense because th- those those tasks tend to be repeated all day long, nonstop, and they can be very much granularized. Like so, you know, like this robot can you see them? You see the videos of the robot that puts the door on the car, it literally puts that door on that car and only that door on that car. So that can be programmed.
1: Right. That's his job.
2: <laughs> yeah. It never stops.
1: Not supposed to do anything else. Right. And if it does something else, everyone's worried. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so part of the interesting, I always think about VCs is you're constantly pitched and you hear and listen to ideas. And I think one of the challenges, uh, like I've, I'm just curious in your like thought process, do you have like a, I don't know, predetermined, like, is this plausible? Because like a lot of times I hear, uh, when I, you know, when I casually talk to people about technology, they'll pitch ideas and I'll think, I don't even know if that's plausible. But <laughs> I'm curious when you hear all these ideas, because it's one of the challenges you obviously have to have is you'll make investments, but in order to make an investment, you probably hear hundred, I don't know, hundreds of pitches, right? What, how many ideas do you think are plausible? Like, and then what is it about some of the pitches that just catch your ear? You're like, man, that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think to be, to be a venture investor, you have to be an optimist, Yeah, right? You've got to, you've got to have the belief that something can be developed and people are going to want it. And, and the, the value associated with that. So I try coming into everything with a completely open mind. I think what my mentor had this concept of intellectual honesty, where, you know, we may not agree on something, but he'd always come to come back in the next day and say, well, why did you think a certain thing? Or why do you think that's a good idea? still may not agree with me, but it was at least that seeking of knowledge and understanding. And I think that's a trait that a venture investor has to have because to say that we, we ourselves know what is possible and every, what every consumer and enterprise is going to need, I don't think is, is accurate either. Yeah, And so sometimes there has to be a leap, leap of faith that's taken on a market itself or maybe a team. And really kind of supporting them, helping them grow and find the right team, help them expand. You know, there's a lot of times there's some product market fit that still has to be done at the stage we invest in. And so it's working through and understanding, do we need to make a pivot or do we need to make a tweak to the offering or something along those lines? So I think when when people come in talking about changing massive markets, that's always exciting. Yeah. But then you got to dig in and understand, like, is there a reason that this market hasn't changed? Is there a reason that is something that you may not necessarily understand? And it could be as simple as, as unions or it could be as simple as a workflow. And sometimes those things are harder to change than you might necessarily expect. But sometimes they're open to change and sometimes they're looking for change because they know it's not necessarily working how they're doing it, but that's what they've been doing for a long time. and So it's easy.
2: So <laughs> did we talked to the, the CTO of TruePill? And uh, we jo- he joked with us that he said, like, had he known all the like roadblocks that were in place in the U- modern U.S. healthcare system, he probably wouldn't have started TruePill. Like, he was just saying, like, <laughs> but, they're, you know, they're, they're climbing up such a such a battle. You know, when I think about what you just what you just said, it's like, that's the big difference between a person like yourself and a person like myself, because I'm inherently skeptical. Like, I like that inherent optimism. I remember the first time I heard about eBay. I was like, what do you mean? I, I paid this guy. I was 16 years old. Like, I pay a person. They're on the other side of the country and they're going to ship me something. i was like, well, how, why would they do that? Like, <laughs> I did the same thing when I was in my 20s and Netflix was still a DVD service. I was like, what do you mean people are going to send the movie back? Like, <laughs> like it, it boggled my mind. I was like, this, no one's going to send it back.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So my my friends that are investors, we often joke that our best investments are the ones that nobody else likes, Yeah, right? We've had, you know, we're investors in Dollar Shave Club. I was told that was stupid. It got acquired for a billion dollars. <laughs> we're investors in Ring and people laughed at me. They're like, you invested in a doorbell business? It's like, well, yeah, no, there's, there's an opportunity here about a broader network and connecting people. And so a lot of times the ones that aren't necessarily obvious are really the best opportunities. And so it's kind of digging in and understanding if this does work, is it going to be really valuable? You know, also understanding that things aren't going to work all the time. Yeah, right? that's just the nature of what we do.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm curious for the for those investments. You know, I love. What was it about it? You know, you said like there were pe- your peers were like, "Hey, Dollar Shave Club, that's not going to work." What made you say like this is going to work?
1: No, I think when you look at Dollar Shave Club, it was something that we we realized the customer behavior of going to the supermarket or the pharmacy, having them unlock the gate so that you can get your razor blades <laughs> was kind of silly. Right. And yeah. the demographic that they were targeting was pretty much like myself that said, you know, if you're going to mail them to my house, I don't have to worry about that. I'm totally great with that. And I'm willing to pay you for that. Right. Yeah. And it was the same thing with ring where we looked at it and we said, you know, if, if we can increase safety around homes and neighborhoods, that's really important. And if we can do that in a connected way, when you want to know who's at your door, which is typically your most valuable asset that people own yeah. as their home. right? And so as you start thinking about, if we get to this next point, what could happen? Yeah, right. And so the initial idea of the doorbell, like there was an aspect of like, okay, how many people are going to want a doorbell? But as we started thinking about the expansion around the community and the neighborhood safety, that was what really got us excited when we started looking at and listening to Jamie's vision.
2: Listen, we, but I busted, I questioned Josh, you, you, you mentioned, you listened to that episode before, but I was like, Hey, but your first examples were battery powered. Like that sucks. Like there's no way I'm going to change my doorbell battery because obviously doorbells are hardwired into your electrical system. So you don't ever have to change it. Like, and he said, yeah, that first design was not optimal.
1: (laughs) Well, I think there's, there's always early adopters to help you get over those hurdles. Right. (laughs) Like we knew coming in that we had work to do. And that's why I also talked when you asked about the technical aspects of investing, right? You know, there's work to be done, right? But is this an opportunity that's we're solving? And if we do invest in this business and we invest the capital to solve these issues, is that going to be a viable long-term business that has real value? And I think that's that's some of the leap of faith you have to take as an investor.
2: Yeah, yeah. I guess you know he was. If you had asked him like, "Hey, are you going to make it electrical power?" He'd be like, "Oh, of course. Like, but it's battery for now." <laughs> but had he said no it's going to be battery forever I'd be like wow that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your uh, your background because you got a pretty cool background. You know it says right on the website engineer at NASA's jet propulsion laboratory. Uh, you got a BS in mechanical engineering, financial engineering. I don't really know what that is, but you know. <laughs> it can sounds kind of nefarious, but
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, from when I was a little kid I always loved building things and playing with technology. And so I I always knew I was going to be an engineer Yeah. And as I was going to undergrad. That's what I did. And then I got into aerospace and I worked at Moog and I worked at Jet Propulsion Laboratories and new mission design. And it, it was kind of funny. You mentioned earlier that, you know, at some point in time, a CEO becomes a recruiter, yeah. you know, at, and at some point in time, an engineer becomes a manager. <laughs> and I started looking at some of those things and really realizing that if, if I wanted to get into the business side and continue to grow as an engineer, I'd eventually be a manager and doing things differently. And so I decided to go back and get my master's in finance, and um, along the way, met my business partner Jason in grad school, and I got into venture. And being investing, investing in venture, I think is one of the best jobs, at least for me. Um, I get to see new ideas, new concepts, and amazingly passionate people every day. And so, from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, it just keeps me completely engaged and energized every day. So it's uh, I'm I'm still using my engineering discipline and problem solving skill sets. Yeah. But I don't, I don't necessarily build things like I used to, which when I first transitioned was, was a little bit of an issue for me, just personally, because it's something that's different going home at the end of the day and realizing you built a rotational control system for something, but it's different coming home saying, you know, I've, I've helped some entrepreneur entrepreneurs think through problems and think about how to grow and scale a business. But yeah, it's taking some time, but I love what I do.
2: Well, when I was a kid, I wanted really wanted to engineer roller coasters because I was fascinated by them. But then I took a physics class, and I was like, "Man, this is not going to be for me." <laughs> yeah, <I> was
1: like <laughs> not for everybody.
2: No, that's an awesome story. I, hopefully, now people are connecting the dots. Like it makes total sense that you're looking for specifically for these things—the mechanical engineering background. I'm curious: when you were at NASA's Jet Propulsion Library, what were you working on before you became, you know, someone that had to manage people?
1: Yeah. Well, I was there when Spirit of Opportunity, the Mars Rovers, landed. I didn't work specifically on those. I worked in a group called Team X where people would come in and propose missions. And we'd effectively figure out how much propulsion and solar and everything else was required for that project. And so it was somewhat similar to what I do now. We got to see new ideas and concepts every day. Yeah. So it was it was enjoyable. But I really I really wanted to get into the business side of things and NASA being quasi-government. Um, and JPL, Particle Tech, um, I really made that transition. But it was an exciting time to be there when the rovers landed, and seeing the most recent rover land is really exciting too. And they're using some interesting automation even today at NASA. Right, they use some terrestrial landing software, which is similar to what we talk about when we talk about autonomous cars. Mm-hmm. Right, when they brought in the most recent rover, it was actually looking at the terrain and understanding where it wanted to land relative to the mission they were looking to uh, achieve. And so they found the best possible landing site for that. Years ago, we were just happy to get it landed.
2: Yeah, it was done by eyeball, right? <laughs> we just eyeball it like that looks good. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, or it was wrapped in, in a shell so it could bounce and it would land where it would land. But now they're, <laughs> now they're actually able to target where you're landing. And you know if you can find the right place on Mars that you want to land, you can limit the distance the rover has to go To collect the samples and achieve the things you want to. So it's really interesting to see even what's happened in the last 10 to 15 years at JPL, even though I'm not there anymore. It's it's an amazing group of people.
2: That is awesome. And that is actually the perfect segue for our next segment. The next segment is the lightning round. And the lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Kevin, this is where we ask you questions outside of your world as a VC, so our audience can get to know you even more. You ready? I'm ready. Will humans colonize Mars in our lifetime?
1: We may have pods of people there in our lifetime, but I don't think we will have thousands of people there in my lifetime.
2: There you go. It seems very plausible because these these, these guys are, let's put it this way, there's some people with some serious resources chasing it.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think in some ways reusable launch is automation, right? SpaceX did it first for space. Yeah. Right. And so if you bring costs down and you can send higher payloads and everything else that's required to be up there, it's possible. I'm not sure that we're going to have full-blown multi-generational colonies there anytime soon, but we could see a colony, small colony or something up there in the next 20, 30 years.
2: Hey, listen, I've seen aliens. I'm not going. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the coolest thing you've seen automated to date?
1: One of the cooler things that, that I've seen was, our company built robotics. I showed up for the first meeting and they handed me an Xbox controller mm-hmm. and they asked me if I wanted to drive this kid steer that was in the parking, in the, in the lot and move some dirt around. And I moved it around with the Xbox controller, lifted up the bucket, brought it back down and uh, handed it back to him. And then they hit a button and it regraded everything. Um, and just to see that transition from manual control to joystick control to automation was, was really cool to see. I mean, that's pretty badass.
2: We did a little homework. You did uh, your undergrad at University of Buffalo. Yep. Where is the best place to get Buffalo Wings in Buffalo? (laughs)
1: Uh, Anchor Bar.
2: Anchor Bar. That's the legendary one, right?
1: That's where they say they started. There's discrepancy around who officially launched them, but Anchor Bar is supposedly the the one.
2: Okay. I'm going to have to check it out. What do you like to do for fun?
1: You know, I've got little kids, so I really run around with my little kids right now. I've got a four and a half year old and two year old. So a lot of my time is consumed there. But like I said, you know, when they're when they're in bed and, and asleep, it's a lot of uh, I read a lot of science fiction and think about the other things that are coming down the pipeline. I'll probably be retired by a lot of them show up, but I, I love seeing what people are thinking about and understanding the different concepts of what what could be.
2: Oh that's awesome. You kind of mentioned before who thought of it first, the engineers or the authors. Now I know you read science fiction. What's uh, what books would you recommend?
1: I'm actually I just finished one that was interesting called The Unincorporated Man. It's kind of interesting because it talks about the rise of VR and how VR basically ruins civilization. Okay. And then how the society is trying to deal with it afterwards and thinking about where the value is whether it's at the human corporate level or our society level. So it's kind of an interesting one.
2: By the way, I still maintain that VR does not have consumer application because it's too weird looking. Like I've never seen somebody use it. I've heard some great use cases like it could be used for training, for military. Totally understand. Training for medicine. Totally understand. But on a consumer level, like I'm just going to have fun and put these goggles on. I don't see it.
1: <laughs> so we, we haven't made any pure VR investments. We have looked at a lot of AR and the computer vision actually has some AR applications that we've invested in. But... I, I would tend to agree with you. I feel like we are a little bit, a little bit away from advancing AR and a mass market.
2: There you go. Well, Kevin, it was awesome having you on the show today. Thanks for sharing some of the things you're looking into at Calibrate. Some of the things that fascinate you, and thanks for sharing a little bit about your life. It was pretty fascinating to hear. It. I mean, you're, the, I'm pretty confident you're the only or you're the first NASA jet propulsion engineer for sure. I'm pretty confident on our show today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Albert. I really enjoyed it. It was a fun conversation.
2: Awesome. Thanks for joining us.